Let me pray for us before we get into the word. Our Heavenly Father, you are the God of the heavens. You are an eternal God, an all-powerful God, an all-knowing God, and you give wisdom and understanding, and you make yourself known, and you reveal to us the deepest mysteries, and you are faithful and just, and you provide for your people even in exile. And Lord, I, I pray that as we get to your word, can you speak to us? Can you make yourself known to us? Can the word become living and active and pierce into our hearts? Lord, you know us. You know what we're going through. You know what we're facing. You know our sorrows, our fears, our anxieties, our stresses. There is nothing hidden from your sight. You know all of it. And so, Lord, I do pray, can you meet us where we are? Can you encourage our hearts? Can you help us to look to you and trust in you even when we find ourselves in the most difficult situations that we feel like are impossible? Can you help us through prayer declare our dependence on you and proclaim your greatness to those around you and even to our own hearts at times? So come, Lord, and speak to us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're in Daniel chapter 2 as we're continuing um, our series through the book of Daniel. Um, so I'm just going to give you a, a little a fine note. We're not going to make it through the entire chapter 2. Um, so no interpretations of dreams. We're just kind of do all the, the groundwork before we get to it. And that's going to be next week, So which means you're going to have to come back next week. Um, so here's why we picked the book of Daniel. Here, here's my hope for us in this series. When we find ourselves especially living amongst in turmoil and we feel like rulers and kings and governing authorities and governments are coming and going, we are reminded that God is and will establish an everlasting kingdom. And so as we see Daniel, we look at the life of Daniel, how he remained faithful to the Lord even in the midst of exile. My hope is that it would encourage us because we ourselves are exiles. We are wandering on our way to the promised land or to the celestial city. And what are we supposed to do? Remain faithful to the Lord even in the midst of chaos and turmoil because we remain faithful to him believing that our God is sovereign and in control of everything. And so as we get to the book of Daniel, we see that the book of Daniel re really is an account of the deportation of Daniel and his other friends and we see how they remain faithful to the Lord. And one of the themes that we've started to see in chapter 1 that we're going to continue to see throughout the book of Daniel is that the Lord is faithful and the Lord is just and the Lord continues to work among his people even when his people are in exile. We saw last week how the Lord remained faithful and just to his covenant promises by sending Judah into exile because of their rebellion and unfaithfulness. 
We saw how the Lord granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch when Daniel was determined to remain faithful to the Lord and not defile his body with the king's food and the king's wine. And we see how the Lord gave Daniel wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And so in Daniel chapter 1, verse 17, we're told that God gave Daniel understanding of visions and dreams of every kind. And now in Daniel chapter 2, we're going to see how valuable that gift is from the Lord. Because it's a gift that's not only going to save Daniel and his three friends, but it's also going to save the wise men, magicians, enchanters, astrologers in Babylon. So, so let's see how this gift came to pass and the benefit of that gift in Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him, and sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the magicians, mediums, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. And when they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream and I'm anxious to understand it. The Chaldeans spoke to the king, in parentheses, Aramaic begins here. May the king live forever, tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretations. So let's stop here and do a little bit of work here. So Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon's greatest and longest reigning king, had a series of bad dreams. And the effects of these bad dreams is twofold. First of all, he was troubled in spirit, deeply troubled. And the second effect is he could not sleep. He lost sleep. Now, in the ancient world, dreams were significant because dreams were often viewed as predictions of the future. And so when a king had a dream, a bad dream about the kingdom, it normally would have future implications. And so if the king could understand the meaning of the dream, then maybe he can make uh, preparations in anticipation of what the future will look like. So if it's a dream about an enemy coming to invade and he knows it beforehand, then he can start making preparations for that invasion if it occurs. And so like any other king who had a bad dream, who wants to understand the meaning and the interpretation of the dreams, he requested that all the wise men, all the sorcerers, all the the magicians would come and help him interpret this dream and give him understanding to this dream. And so eager to serve their kings, the, the wise men requested from the king, okay, tell us your dream. Tell us your dream and then we can consult with one another. We can consult the mediums and our gods and maybe give an interpretation of this dream and help you to understand the significance of this dream. And in verse 5, we're going to see how the king throws an horrific curveball to the wise men. Now, before we look at chapter 5 and we look at this curveball, I want to draw your attention uh, to verse 4. And some of your translations, you're going to notice in verse 4, there's parentheses that says Aramaic begins here. One of the difficulties of this book is that this book is written in two languages. It consists of both Hebrews and in Aramaic. So from Daniel chapter 2 verse 4 all the way to Daniel chapter 7 verse 28, that is written in Aramaic. 
And scholars have long been puzzled on why and really can't come up with a consensus. And I'm not going to try to come with a consensus, but maybe I can shed a little bit of light of why. Andrew Hill, one of the scholars, says it will be only logical for the wise men to communicate with a language that is common to all since these wise men were diverse uh, racially and ethnically. And maybe even the reason why Daniel begins his narrative in Hebrew and now shifts into Aramaic, maybe it's because his audience or the people he's writing to doesn't knows it's not just going to be Jews who's reading it, but maybe the nations. And so could it be that Daniel was trying to tell the story in a language that the nations could read and understand? In other words, could it be that in Daniel's writing and in the recording of the story in chapter 2, that there is a missional impulse? And if that's the case, what we are beginning to see unfold in this theme in chapter 2, and I'm just going to give you the main point right off the bat. I want to see you unfold before your very eyes as you read the text. And so here's my main point for the day if you're taking notes. What we're beginning to see and what we're going to continue to see is that the Lord creates an impossible situation to reveal His greatness to the nations. So what's happening in chapter 2? The Lord is creating an impossible situation. Why? So that he can reveal his greatness to the nations. And so as we get to chapter 5, now we're beginning to be introduced to this impossible situation that the Lord is creating. Let's look at verse 5. It says this, The king replied to the Chaldeans, that's the wise men, My word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a garbage dump. But if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive gifts, a reward, and great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. They answered a second time, May the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will make known the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain you're trying to gain some time because you see that my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream, there's one decree for you. You have conspired to tell me something false or fraudulent until the situation changes. So tell me the dream, and I will know, I will know you can give me its interpretation. And the Chaldeans answered the king, no one on earth can make known what the king requests. Consequently, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this of any magician, medium, or Chaldean. What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. And because of this, the king became violently angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. The decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute him. So let's stop here. What's the impossible situation that the Lord has created? The king had a dream. And he is rejecting the counsel of the wise men. 
The wise man wants them, wants, that, wants the king to tell him the dream, and the king says, no, I want you to tell me the dream that I had so that I know your interpretation is accurately. That's how I know you will be trustworthy. And if you cannot do this, if you cannot tell me the dream I had, and if you cannot give me an interpretation of the dream, you will be torn limb by limb and your entire house, your entire household, I love the translation, will be a garbage dump. In other words, you and everything you love or had will be destroyed But if you can tell me my dream, if you can give me the interpretation, you will receive great reward and great honor. And so going back and forth, the wise men respond to the king, and the king accuses them, saying, you are buying time. And they're responding to the king. Basically, they're telling the king, look, what you're requesting is impossible. Like, notice the comprehensive language. Look at verses 10 and verse 11 again. They, they say in verse 10, no one on earth can make known what the king requests. No one. And then they're saying, no king, however great and powerful, have ever asked for anything like this. Like this situation is so impossible that there is no one that can fulfill this request. And there is no one that has ever made such a request. And then in verse 11, they say, what the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods. In other words, no one living on earth, human, can fulfill the request. This request requires a divine intervention. But the problem is these gods that we serve are so impersonal that the, that the magicians, the Chaldeans are saying their dwelling is not with mortals. In other words, here's the problem. Even if we go to the gods with this request, they might be able to answer it, but they're so impersonal that they do not dwell with us. So even if we ask them, who knows if they're going to respond? And I think verse 11 is ironic and significant. It is ironic because they are correct. No one can fulfill this request. Only God can do so. Only God can tell them the dream and only God can interpret the dream because where did the dream come from? It came from God. And it's also significant because the notion of the gods dwelling with mortals seemed so inconceivable to the Babylonians and to the other nations. Gods do not dwell among people, for they dwell in the heavenly places. They're so impersonal. Let us just please and satisfy them, and yet we know that the God of the Bible tells a different story. Right in the beginning, we see that God dwelt among Adam and Eve in the garden. And even after man has sinned, has rejected God, God made a people. And he dwelt among them in a tabernacle as the Israelite carried, as the Israelite moved into the promised land. And after the temple was filled, God dwelt among his people in the temple. And the story of the Bible continues where in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word took on flesh and dwelt among His people. And again, notice the theme that is developing. 
The Lord is the one that's creating this impossible situation. He is the one who gave the king this dream and caused him to be so troubled that he would make this unreasonable request. And the wise men realized this situation is so impossible, there's no good, good outcome, that this requires divine intervention that only the gods could intercede. And fulfill this request. And the question is, which God? Well, let's see. Look, look at verse 12 again. Verse 12 says this. Because of this, the king became violently angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. The decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them. Then Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Arioch, the king's officer, why is the decree from the king so harsh? Then Arioch explained the situation to Daniel. So Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king the interpretation. So the inability of the king's wise men did not alter the king's request or threat. Instead, he doubled down. And in wrath, he ordered that all the wise men immediately be executed, including Daniel and his three friends. And so as Arioch, the lead executioner, is, is executing the order of the king and killing all the wise men, he finally comes up to Daniel and his three friends, which is part of the wise men, and wanted to execute them. And what we see from Daniel, unlike the king that is unraveling by the seams and losing his temper, losing his cool, what is Daniel doing? In cool, calm, and collect, with discretion, he approaches Arioch. And again, what do we need to remember is this. Even though the text is not telling us, we know in verse 17, who gave Daniel wisdom and understanding? Who allowed Daniel in such a situation to remain calm, cool, and collect? The Lord. The Lord gave it to him. And what we see in our text is just like the Lord granted Daniel favor and compassion before the chief eunuch, what does he do so now again? He grants favor before the lead executioner, Arioch. And with incredible faith, incredible courage, Daniel goes to the king. And basically, he asked the king for more, more time. And what did the king refuse to do to the wise men in verse 8? He said, no, you guys are stalling. I'm not giving you any more time because you're trying to deceive me. So in verse 8, he said no. And Daniel now goes to the king and asks for more time. And the king grants him this request. And again, even though the text is not telling us that it was God, we know from what we've already heard, the Lord is working. The Lord grants favor, uh, Daniel favor with Arioch, the lead executioner, who takes a personal risk. Instead of executing the order, he takes time out and brings Daniel before the king. The king could have said, Arioch, why are you not filling out my execution? You should be killed as well. But instead, he takes that risk, brings him before the king. The king somehow, who said no now unraveling, all of a sudden said, I will give you time 
now the lives of Daniel and the wise men of Babylon are at stake. The request of the king is impossible to fulfill without divine intervention. Either the Lord acts or they're dead. Look at verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and told his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, urging them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night, and Daniel praised the God of the heavens. So what did Daniel do? Daniel did what only he could do in this situation. Seek mercy before the Lord, before the God of the heavens concerning this wisdom. And we see how the Lord fulfilled this request and revealed to Daniel this wisdom. And we see how Daniel responded in praise and exaltation. And we're going to look at the prayer in a minute. But I want to draw your attention to the title that Daniel ascribes to the Lord. He calls God the God of the heavens. Twice in verse 18 and 19. Five times in the rest of chapter 2. So what does that mean for us? If something is mentioned in Scripture is important, if it's mentioned more than twice, it's trying to draw our attention to something. So five times the title of God is described as the God of the heavens, which means we've got to do a little homework. What does this title mean? Why does Daniel refer to God, to the Lord, as the God of the heavens? Well, first of all, what that title means is that God's power and God's wisdom is not restricted to the boundaries of Israel. It's not restricted to the boundaries of the promised land, but the Lord has global jurisdiction. God is involved in the affairs of the people wherever they find themselves. So even though Daniel is in exile far away from Israel in a foreign land, he is still under the rule and reign of God. It's not like God only rules over this land like all the other gods does, but God rules over everything. And in Genesis 24, verse 7, Abraham remembers the Lord and he calls them the God of heavens who took him from his father's household and took him to a new land. And David in his mind is probably, I mean, Daniel in his mind is probably thinking about the God of Abraham, who is the God of the heaven. And just like Abraham, he himself has been removed from his father's house, from his homeland, but this, in, but this time through exile. And God took Abraham to the promised land, but he took Daniel from it. If God was only the God of Jerusalem, of Israel, Daniel would have no hope because that would mean he is moved beyond the jurisdiction of God. But because Daniel is saying, you are the God of the heavens, which means you rule over all. There is not a domain you're not in charge of. He can now confront this God and enter into the presence of the God with hope, knowing he is the God of the heavens. 
And look at the praise Daniel offers as he reveals to us who this God of the heaven is. Verse 20 says, And he declared, May the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and acknowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers, because you have given me wisdom and power, and now you have let me know what we asked of you, for you have let us know the king's mystery. In this prayer, this doxology, this hymn of praise, he acknowledges several character aspects of God. The first thing he, he says about the God of the heavens, you are an eternal God. In other words, God has always existed. There is no beginning, no end to God. He always has, always will, and always will be existing. There's no beginning to him. There's no end to him. And not only is he eternal, but he is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He knows everything. He has power over everything. He's even sovereign over the nations. In other words, he determines kings and rulers. He sets them in place. He tells them where they can rule and where they cannot rule. And when their time is up, he removes them. He gives gifts of wisdom and understanding and knowledge. In other words, he is not some impersonal force that's just playing a chess game and moving pawns around. But he gives wisdom and understanding. He reveals himself so that people may understand and know him. And he is faithful to his people. And this is why Daniel can praise him. You have revealed this mystery to me. You've had mercy on my life. And we see how the Lord answers his prayer. So let's, let's stop here and, and talk about application. So the main theme that we've been seeing is the Lord is the one who created this impossible situation. He was the one that gave the king this dream, caused him to be so troubled that he would act in an unrealistic way and have unrealistic expectations, an unrealistic demand that put the wise men, including Daniel and his friends, between an, a rock and a hard place. Without divine intervention, they too would perish. So let's talk about personal application here. When we find ourselves in difficult situations, almost impossible situations, as the saying goes, between a rock and a hard place, we don't know if we should go or whether we should stay. And we feel like all the odds are up against us. What do we do? How do we navigate through this? I think before I'm going to give you instructions, I do think there's a truth that you need to understand because it changes the ball game. The first thing that you have to understand is not in your notes is this, that you have to understand who was the one that created that impossible situation in your life? The Lord. 
The Lord is the one who created that impossible situation in your life. And if he is the one that created that impossible situation in your life, that means that impossible situation serves a purpose. Because if it did not come from the Lord, there was no purpose in it, and it was just some random accident, unfortunate series of events that occurred in your life. But because you know that it is from the Lord, it means it serves a purpose. And what we're seeing in Daniel chapter 2, what we're going to see next week, the reason for that is so that the Lord can reveal His greatness to the nations. And that's what it's going to do next week. But what we know is, why does the Lord create impossible situations in our lives? It's for His glory. To reveal His greatness and His goodness and His glory, not just to me, but to those around me. Once I understand the truth, now the question is, okay, I get it serves a purpose, but when I'm confronted with an impossible situation, how do I navigate through that? Knowing that the Lord will be glorified. The first thing we do if you're taking notes, our response to an impossible situation, and we see this in the life of Daniel, our response is to depend on his greatness through prayer. Our first response is to depend on His greatness through prayer. When we pray, we're not just asking God to intervene. But what prayer does to us, prayer first humbles us because it reminds us that we cannot This situation is beyond our control, beyond our abilities to navigate through, and we find ourselves in an impossible situation, and we need the Lord to intervene. So prayer first humbles us, but then it also calls us to declare our dependence on God. It's saying, God, we can't, but you can. We are depending on you. But you know what I love about Daniel's prayer? I love his approach. What did he ask his buddies to do? How should we pray? What did he say? Let us ask the God of the heavens to have what? Have mercy on us. Think about that posture of humility. It wasn't a posture of entitlement. Hey, God, you better intervene. But rather, Daniel and his friends understand, look, we're in exile. We're getting what we deserve. But Lord, can you have mercy on us? In other words, can you give us what we don't deserve? We deserve to be destroyed because of our rebellion against you. But somehow, can you intervene? Can you intercede on our behalf? That's what prayer does. Prayer is not some claiming some entitlement thing, rub-a-dub-dub, show up, Lord, but rather it is saying in our dependence on the Lord, have mercy on us because we deserve to be destroyed. Can you have mercy on us and intervene in some way? We find ourselves in an impossible situation. Can you reveal your greatness, your goodness, and your glory and have mercy on us? So when you find yourself in an impossible situation, understand the truth that this is from the Lord. It means it serves a purpose. And you respond to his greatness by declaring dependence on his greatness through prayer. 
And the second response, if you're taking notes, is to proclaim his greatness to the nations. To proclaim his greatness to the nations. After the Lord answered Daniel's prayer, Daniel busted out of a hymn of praise. In other words, he was declaring the greatness of God to the nations, knowing his audience was going to read it, and what we're going to see next week, next week, he's proclaiming God's greatness to King Nebuchadnezzar. So what do we do? We pray. We proclaim the Lord's greatness. I, I love Psalm 96, verse 4 to 5. It says, for the Lord is great and is highly praised. He is feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. That's what we ought to proclaim. All the things we're chasing after are idols and does not satisfy. The only one that satisfies us, even when I find out myself in an impossible situation, is the God of the heavens. For he created me, he fulfills me, and he satisfies me. And come and taste and see how the Lord is good, even in impossible situation. And so I hope that this encourages your heart. You're going to find yourself in impossible situations, and it is from the Lord, and it is to reveal his greatness to the nations. What do you do? You respond in declaring your dependence on him through prayer and you proclaim his greatness to the nations. And the Lord will have mercy on us as you already had. Um, as we get ready to sit at the table, I think I've kind of set it up pretty good where we can think about where was there another time in the Bible where there was an impossible situation that the Lord has created and it revealed his greatness to the nations. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Let, let, let me set it up for you and show you. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned. We've fallen short of God's glory. We've fallen short of his standards. The Bible even says that we didn't just fall short. We've rebelled against God. We have defied God. Children of wrath. And because of our actions, because of our rebellion against God, all the evidence is stacked up against us. We have broken his law, and now we are simply waiting for the execution of that law. We've done the crime, now we're waiting for the time. There is no excuse, there's no way out. We can't say, well, let me do a little good to pay for my sentence. No, the only thing we're waiting for is for the just judge to give his condemning verdict of we are guilty and the punishment for the crime is, is death. There's nothing we can do about it. And to make the situation even more impossible, there is no way in heaven on our earth that a just judge can take lawbreakers and somehow declare them innocent and still remain just that would make a bad judge we'll put it another way there is no way if god is righteous which he is 
How in the world can he take unrighteous people and declare them righteous and somehow remain righteous in it all? You would say, Neil, that is impossible. There's no way that God can do it. So we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place. An impossible situation. And yet Paul reminds us there is a righteousness that has been revealed. That the law and the prophets kind of whispered about. It's called the righteousness of Christ. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, he took on flesh, he dwelt among us, he lived under the law, and he lived a life we could not live. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And as he lived the life we could not live, and he fulfilled the demands of the law without sinning, he died the death we were supposed to die. Not only did he fulfill the demands of the law, he also fulfilled the curses of the law. Because what's the curse of the law? You break the law, you you die. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, what do we see? We see a righteous God righteously pouring his wrath out on sin and punishing sin for what it rightfully deserves. Because Jesus somehow exchanged our our unrighteousness for his righteousness. He who knew no sin took on sin, took all of our sins and paid for it in full. And God rightfully poured his wrath out on his son. Sin was punished for. His wrath was satisfied. And in exchange, he exchanged our unrighteousness for his righteousness. The Bible says that we have the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at us, he sees us as righteous, not because we've done anything, but because what Christ has done on our behalf, it is his righteousness that he sees. And so God declares us righteous, not on what we have done, but what on his son has done on our behalf. And this is all available through faith. And so what we see at the cross, an impossible situation that the Lord created to reveal his glory to the nations, to show us how a righteous God remains righteous by rightfully punishing sin and declaring unrighteous people righteous because he punished his son on our behalf and we've received his righteousness. And all of that is available through faith, believing that what he has done for me was necessary and sufficient. That God can accept me, not because of what I have done, but because of what Christ has done on my behalf, where my sins have been paid for. The curses I deserve was put on Jesus. And the wrath of God was satisfied. And God can accept me because of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. And if that, what, if that is what God has done in the past, if he took an impossible situation and revealed his glory, what can he do in your life today? What, he can, what can he do in your future impossible situations today? If the Lord was faithful in the past, will he not remain faithful today and even in the future? 
So what do we do in the midst of it? We look to the cross where we're reminded the most impossible situation. The Lord revealed his glory and it was for my good. It was for your good because there the Lord accomplished salvation for all. If I trust in him, look to him, cling to him. And so as we we get ready to to sit at the table, I, I want you to think about your impossible situation, but I want you to think in light of the cross, the salvation that he has accomplished for you, the righteousness that he's imputed for you, the sin that was paid for you, the wrath of God that was satisfied. If the Lord acted faithfully in the past, Will he not remain faithful to you today and in the future? Look to the cross of Christ. Now, for some of you, maybe you're struggling in your faith. Maybe you're not fully believing. My encouragement is look to the cross of Christ where the Lord reveals his love and his wrath at the same time and reveals his goodness where he rightfully punishes sin and declares unrighteous people righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. Look to him trust in him, cling to him. Let me pray for us and then we get ready to to distribute these elements. Our Lord, we, we thank you that when we look at our lives, every impossible situation is from you because you are sovereign and control of everything. Can you help us in those moments to cling to you? to trust you? Can you help us to surrender our lives to you? Lord, in the midst of the chaos that we face, can you help us to look to the cross? Where where we see your greatest goodness was revealed to us. Where you did not give us what we deserve where our sins was paid for in full, where the wrath was satisfied and our righteousness came from you, Lord Jesus. Help us to cling to that in the midst of chaos, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of impossible situations. And Lord, for those who are far from you, can you open up their eyes? Can you help them to recognize their desperate need for you? Can you help them to recognize the impossible situation they're in? that they are standing rightfully condemned before you, deserving death. There is no way out unless they cling to the cross of Christ. Can you help them to turn to you and surrender to you, to put their faith in you, that what you've done for them was necessary and sufficient? Lord, help us to meditate on these truths. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and distribute these elements. And as we distribute these elements, think about the cross. Think about the impossible situation the Lord has created and how he has delivered us through the cross of Christ. In my time in the word with the Lord, I read Philippians chapter 2 this morning. And it says this, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, 
taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see the impossible situation. And we see the humility of Christ. Look at the glory. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What glory did he display in an impossible situation of the cross? Accomplished our salvation. As we confess him, bow down and worship of him. His body was given to us. Eat it in remembrance of him. His blood was shed for us. The new covenant we have in him, drink it in remembrance of him. Lord, we thank you for this salvation. We thank you that you have intervened. That when we deserve death, you died and gave us life. You've paid for our sins in full and you've set us free from the bondages of our sins. And you are highly exalted for your glory was revealed to the world. Your ultimate goodness was displayed on the cross. And Lord, may we look to you and may we proclaim others to you and see, come and look how good our God is. Look at his greatness. Look at his mercy. Look at his grace. Look at his love. Look at his righteousness. Come and behold him. He offers life. He satisfies. Lord, may we never take our eyes off of you. And Lord, when we wander and you hold on to us, help us to look to you, trust in you, and be overwhelmed by you. We love you and we praise you and we thank you for everything. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand Can we worship our King?